Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 30th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss the end of the line for Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning, and whether it's possible for a great athlete to end his career with dignity. We'll also talk about LSU's decision to keep Les Miles as its football coach, and Georgia's move to fire its coach, Mark Richt. Announcer Ian Eagle will also join us to explain how he prepares for a sports broadcast. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. <laughs> with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hi, Mike. Hi, Josh. We're all going under. We're very unsportsy. Josh, how you doing? Coming at you. 350 Josh, hey. megawatts of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Pesca's in a very strange mood today slap happy we're gonna we're gonna drunk. go That's with right. it yeah. we're gonna start off a little sleep deprived we're gonna see where where mike pesca's brain takes us in the whimsy category did you notice any whimsy in the nfl on sunday mike? i did it's an iron eagle related whimsy during their game dan fouts who he was doing the game with uh made a reference they, they showed a clip of an old player and there was uh some hair out of the back of his helmet and he said little lettuce showing a little lettuce and i and eagle immediately jumped in and asked dan fouts if he has a lacrosse background because that's a lacrosse phrase apparently fouts just played it off my theory being that that fouts predates lacrosse even though the native americans brought it to canada but it did not go to the pacific northwest where uh, dan fouts was busy growing what he calls the front lettuce or the uh, the manly manly mountain beard <laughs> dan fouts emerged fully formed from <laughs> zeus's skull <laughs> with, with beard yeah yeah um stefan you watched the gray cup which we're gonna bracket this. I watched ninety seconds of the Grey Cup. You watched the Grey Cup. We're gonna bracket this because Canadian football is all whimsy. 
Right. And so Canada is all when you're whimsy. when you're all whimsy, you're really no whimsy at all. That's right. But what did you see in the Grey Cup? I saw Mounties carrying the Grey Cup ah! down the stairs through the stands to the field for the presentation after the game, which featured, by the way, the Edmonton Eskimos and the Ottawa Red Blacks. The two-year-old Ottawa Red Blacks. It's a long story about Ottawa football. Mm-hmm. Very, we'll, very complicated. We'll save for another whimsy watch. We'll save that for another. We'll the other thing I love, very whimsical. I found very whimsical rule. There's a three-minute warning in the Canadian Football League, not a two-minute warning. I found this to be very, very whimsical. It's as if they put all their numbers in a bag and just said, <laughs> yes. "Ah, let's see, uh, three downs, touch yeah, ten yards, end zone, yeah, two, sure, one point. Why not? Yeah, yeah, craziness." Two-yard gap, but the line of scrimmage, sure, why not? Whatever. I want to, I'll whimsy, I'll whimsy your whimsy by saying I watch, I think my favorite show on TV is uh, In the Papers on local cable affiliate New York One. So Pat Kiernan, who's actually the only good anchor man still alive, he, uh, he just reads the newspaper on TV, which I loved, and he led today, he's a Canadian, he led today with the dearth of coverage of the Grey Cup in all of the New York newspapers, and he found that the only reference was in the New York Post, and they literally had a line on that page where they had, you know, highlight results that said, Red Blacks pl- played in the Grey <laughs> Cup. But yeah. kudos to Kiernan for leading with that. And kudos to the Eskimos, huh? Kudos they to Eskimos. They won the Grey Cup, Grey Cup winner, Edmonton Eskimos. There were two excellent interviews for, by the TSN reporter after the game, who said the word organization, by the way. She, uh, she talked to Adarius Bowman uh-huh. and Odell Willis. Adarius Bowman, I, I Googled him. He was dismissed from North Carolina for a pot bust. Oklahoma State picked him up. His NFL draft stock plummeted after another pot bust. He was went undrafted. Canada. Odell Willis, born December 28th, 1984. Happy birthday, Odell. He has played for, he's a defensive lineman. He was signed by the Peoria Pirates as a street free agent. He played at West Georgia in college. He's also played for the Spokane Shock, Green Bay Blizzard, Calgary Stampeders, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and Saskatchewan Rough Riders nice. before, before joining the Eskimos. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about a new world record for solving a Rubik's Cube as quickly as possible. I'll leave it to you to guess which Hang Up and Listen host suggested this as the bonus segment. <laughs> May not be a sport, but just try and stop us from talking about it. To hear this uh, bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus, for all your Rubik's speed cubing needs and desires. On Sunday night, the Lakers' Kobe Bryant announced he was retiring after the season by publishing a poem on the website of the Players' Tribune. The poem, titled Dear Basketball, begins, In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome <laughs> decree where Alf the Sacred River ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Wait, I'm hearing that was actually Kublai Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The poem actually starts, From water, the moment water I... everywhere, but not... <laughs> From the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. And it continues, This season is all I have left to give. My heart can take the pounding. My mind can handle the grind. But my body knows it's time to say goodbye. The 37-year-old Bryant, a five-time NBA champ, the third leading scorer in league history, has been unbelievably amazingly bad. 
in his 20th season. He's moving with the fluidity of a Grecian urn. His first game, post-retirement announcement. No, owed. <laughs> a f- <laughs> he's owed for, for 20. His uh, first game post-retirement announcement was, in fact, a 4-for-20 shooting performance against the Pacers that ended with an air ball. <laughs> it led either John Keats or Stephen A. Smith to note that when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe. Before he wrote this weekend that his body knew it was time to say goodbye, Kobe had sounded totally delusional. He shot one for 14 against the Warriors and said, my shooting will be better. I could have scored 80. It wouldn't have made a damn difference. We just have bigger problems. (laughs) By the way, by the way, just to note, they did not lose that game by 80. So it would have made a difference. But anyway. (laughs) When I watch Kobe play, I used to hear the carpenter singing as he measures his plank or beam. But now I just get the feeling that death is inside the bones like a barking where there are no dogs. And you, Mike Pesca, as well, must die, beloved dust, mm-hmm. and all your beauty stand you in no stead. So that leads me to the question, how much does Kobe Bryant suck? Well, right I, you know, and the shame of it is, I remember the time he won his town the race. He chaired him through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought him shoulder high. But now he really sucks. I mean, why couldn't he just pull an Andre Iguodala and just retire from offense, right? And concentrate on just half of his game. But uh, by advanced metrics, Kobe Bryant, of all the players taking uh, up 30 minutes a game, has the lowest shooting percentage. Ty Lawson's right there with him. But when you look at the offensive rating and the defensive rating, he is the worst player in basketball. When you look at this great stat called the real plus minus, yeah, Jaleel Okafor seems to be worse, but he's played all of, what, 15 games, and he is averaging 18 points, and he is on the Sixers. Yeah, there is a good argument that Kobe Bryant is the worst player in basketball, and that's just what he contributes, or we should say detracts, on the court when you add in his massive salary hit, and more importantly... Highest paid player in the NBA. Yup, and more importantly, his ego that does not allow the Lakers to do anything without him on or off the court. We say the laurel wreath, you wore it well, but now it is time to go on Kobe. That said, I liked the poem. The poem was not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. And I think that really sums up Kobe's <laughs> approach to his final season here and the reasons that he has chosen to, to, uh, to go out the way he chose to go out. I think there were a lot of veiled references in his poem, John Dunn just being one of them. Let's look at some other statistics, Mike Pesca, shall we? Yes. V- value added? Kobe is 238th in the league in value added. His, fa- his value- 0.2 <laughs> points. His value added stat is just the word not. <laughs> <laughs> Replacement level for small forward, value added 10.5. Kobe is at 0.2. I repeat 0.2. His usage rate, however, remains yeah, very, cool. very high. 13th in the league, tied for 13th in the league. That's number of possessions per 40 minutes, 28.5. So the Lakers offense, yes, is running entirely still through Kobe Bryant, which, as you sort of pointed out, Mike, is preventing the Lakers from trying to develop any of the several young players that they have on that team. And he's got an enabler in his coach, who's his buddy, Byron Scott, who has said, I'm not going to stop playing him. I'm not going to discourage him from shooting. He's going to go out the way he wants to go out. And as a general manager and the owners of the team, mm-hmm. um, there's kind of one word, a hyphenated word, to describe this season for Kobe, and it's self-indulgent. And it was similar with Derek Jeter, right, that 
he didn't really warrant being on the field the last year, but he got this whole kind of valedictory um, experience. And it's something that Kobe has said that he doesn't want. He's like, oh, I, you know, I really want to thank the fans. They don't need to thank me. I don't want to get like rocking chairs on the road. But that's what he's going to get. And the Lakers are allowing him to get. And we'll get to Peyton Manning in a second. But it's something that's just very, very rare for an athlete in any sport to be able to choose how he goes out, not in terms of how he plays, because Kobe would not choose to play this badly, but in terms of being on his own terms, the amount he plays, um, when he chooses to leave. Um, in his press conference after Sunday's game, he says, there's so much beauty in the pain of this thing. It sounds really weird to say that, but I appreciate the really, really tough times as much as I appreciate the great times. And it's important to go through that progression because that's when you learn about the self. And Mike Pesca isn't really that what sports are about. Yeah. It's learning, having the players learn about themselves. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the places he'll go. <laughs> he has brains in his head, his feet in his shoes. He can steer himself in any direction he chooses. And I think the difference with Jeter and Peyton Manning, and we'll get to that in a second, is not their ultimate years, but their penultimate years, assuming that Peyton retires after this year. They were good. And they were really useful to their teams the year before they decided to retire. So when they come into the, their last year, I don't know if Peyton has decided to retire. Perhaps that decision is forced upon him. Maybe much like Kobe's suckitude this year. But I can't fault Jeter. I really can't fault Jeter. I mean, the Yankees really wanted him there to drive gate. And he was a very good mm -hmm. player. Well, you know, pretty good, useful, an above average player up until his very last year. And Peyton Manning, two years removed from a fantastic offense and a Super Bowl, one year removed from st still being one of the best quarterbacks in football. But Brian has been this bad for a couple of years. It snuck up on us. Like, well, the difference this year is that he's actually playing. <laughs> yeah, this year he's playing. And unlike the other two teams we're talking about, the Lakers are not in a conversation, as they say, as I try not to say, for a championship. They're clearly terrible. They're only going to be terrible. You trade positions with the Sixers. They have no chance for being good based on and so what I'm saying is their suckitude is not uh, going to be turned around into great draft picks or a better position. It's really he's just he's just a neutron bomb of a person with the Lakers this year. Well, let's also point out that with someone like Jeter, you can hide a player on a baseball team. The Yankees right. had given up on last season. It was clear they were not going anywhere. Um, just as it's clear that the Lakers aren't going anywhere this year. And he but doesn't really stand in the way of the development of other players. And, you know, they brought in a new shortstop from outside the organization. And, and let's assume they had another shortstop in AAA or AA waiting to take over for Jeter. That person would still be playing every day. He would still be playing baseball every day. He would still be hitting and fielding every day. With Kobe sucking up the air in wherever they play the Staples Center and sucking up possessions and shots, he is directly preventing the development of younger players who are going to have to replace him. So as a franchise, I don't know what the Lakers are thinking. Maybe they're thinking we remain rich. There is a free agent market. We will get a high draft pick. We have, you know, we, we will, we will suck this season up and write this off as a tribute to a player who's been with us for 20 seasons. And this is the way that he wants to go out. And we're going to allow that to happen. And we think that that's worth it uh, organizationally. I don't begrudge, uh, Kobe, maybe you guys disagree. I think this is the, I don't either. the team's decision or whatever fault there is lies with 
the team, and it's easy to mock him. We've done it for uh, about eight to ten minutes at this point. <laughs> but it is impressive that he's been able to play this long, this many minutes, put up this many points, win this many championships. There was a really great profile of him in The New Yorker last year by Ben McGrath, where he talked about, oh, people say father time is undefeated. That's the thing I think people don't understand when they talk about father time and they look at my injuries. They're equating that to others who have come before me. He has, has had this kind of stubbornness that's allowed him to be great. And it's that stubbornness that's allowed him to be not great for this long. Um, but just the amount of work that he puts in to even get on the court. And it's like, I guess if there is one thing to fault him for, he is very willing to tell you how much work that he puts in. He's not exactly modest about you know, his work been. ethic right. and, and how other players don't live up to that. But it's sort of, again, ending a career on his terms and people kind of marveling at his willingness to stay on the floor, his willingness to do whatever it takes to play as if that's the goal as opposed to like actually being a legitimate NBA player at this point. Kobe Bryant is the 15th best player in NBA history in win shares. And I think that statistic pretty much accurately reflects how good he's been because it's a cumulative statistic. And Kobe's, though only 37 years old, he was drafted at 17 years old. But it also reflects his greatness. How many of those players in the top 15, in the top 20, if just given free reign to do whatever they want with their legacy, wouldn't do what he's doing? I mean, a bunch of them kind of did. Shaq played until he could play no more. The difference is that Shaq didn't demand 20-something shots a, a game, and also Shaq wasn't enabled to that point. Same with Malone, same with Stockton, same with all the other guys. Nowitzki gets the complaints. David Robinson played up until he could play no more. Tim Duncan, I'm reading all the guys above Kobe in the top 15. All these guys want to play as much as they can. I think the big difference is they, the rest of them either played in systems that didn't allow them to ruin everyone else or were traded off those teams and could only, like Shaq, play a couple minutes for, uh, you know, the Celtics here and there by the end. One last thing, and then we'll move on to Peyton. Paul Pierce is an example of a guy who's been a great player for about as long as as Kobe has been. Um, and his star is just kind of slowly diminishing, as it does for players who aren't the kind of mega star celebrities like Kobe Bryant is. Like, he went from being the guy on the Celtics to, like, playing a few, you know, less minutes on the Nets to being a role player for the Wizards, who's still taking like big shots in playoff games. And this year, his numbers are just really low for the Clippers playing even fewer minutes a game. And then next year, he probably won't be in the NBA. Like That's how it happens for guys who aren't Kobe Bryant. Um, but Peyton Manning, um, he did not play against Tom Brady in Sunday night's uh, Broncos when Brock Osweiler, his uh, replacement, is now 2-0 and in his first two starts for Denver. Peyton did appear in like 430 different commercials. They also showed on NBC a diagram of his torn plantar fascia, which was accompanied uh, by the tune of Arcade Fire's Rebellion Lies, which I'm not sure what message Fred Gadelia was trying to send us there. Um, but there was reporting on Sunday before the game that, you know, Denver, if, if Osweiler does well, they're not going to put Peyton back in there. Peyton wants to get back in there. There's the possibility of uh, infighting within the organization there. And this, you know, it seems a little bit similar to what happened with Drew Bledsoe and, and Tom Brady, um, Peyton Manning being much better than Drew Bledsoe. 
Um, what's you guys' analysis of what's gone on with Peyton the last couple of well, years? Well, I think there's a distinction to be made between Peyton and Kobe if we're trying to make one, and that Peyton is not a narcissist, in a performance narcissist, the way that Kobe has proven to be. And that's not to take anything away from Kobe's ability. That is, like you said, Josh, that's just who he is. We see commercials and interviews and videos, and he made a whole movie about himself, about his work ethic, uh, Kobe Bryant did. Manning clearly want, wanted to keep playing despite an obvious diminishment in his ability and his arm strength in his general physical ability. I mean, God, the guy had neck surgery. Um, you know, but we're going to hear about what a great guy Peyton Manning is as this winds down. Already, Brock Os Osweiler said after the game last night, Manning came in at halftime. He wasn't on the sidelines during the game, but he came into the locker room at halftime, and he gave me a bunch of tips about how to exploit uh, New England's defense and do better and help win the game. So Osweiler was crediting Manning. So this is going to be a very graceful exit, but in terms of whether we care... Are you sure about that? I kind of think it will be a graceful... I mean, you could say that it hasn't been graceful up until now, that maybe he he shouldn't have played last year even. Um, or he had great stats last he year. He had great stats last year, but you could certainly argue that, look, the guy was putting his future health at tremendous risk, potentially, right? I mean, neck surgery? I don't know. I'm not his doctor. Um, but what they share in common is that they have devoted their entire lives, I mean, adult lives, certainly professionalized. Kobe Bryant from 17 years old in the NBA and Peyton was, you know, from the crib, was groomed to be an NFL quarterback. And athletes like these are rare. I mean, I wrote about Peyton Manning's obsessiveness and how players couldn't sort of fathom his just anal retentiveness and his and his all-consuming obsession with playing football. And that's what these guys share in common. And I hold no I don't begrudge either of them or any player that wants to hang on as long as possible. It's something they truly, truly love doing, and they are among the best who have ever done this stuff. So why shouldn't they want to keep going? I don't. I think this business about tarnishing your legacy is bullshit. But who's saying that about Peyton? Maybe now they are, but last year the guy threw for 39 touchdowns. That was mm -hmm. the 12th most a quarterback had ever thrown for in a season. By the way, Dante Culpepper went through for 39 touchdowns. <laughs> um, so he, and I thought the thing he was doing from a fan's perspective was amazing, which is, it was clear that his arm wasn't there, but he was so good because he had found a way to just outthink football. He used right. his brain to beat other teams. Kobe and Bryant. And it's easier to do that, I think, in football or in like Jeter's case, again, to hide someone in a lineup than it is in basketball. Well, I think it's, in, people I, I guess I, I would think it was would be impossible to do that in football until Peyton Manning did it. Although I, I don't know, there is much more of a mental aspect, you know, clearly the quarterback thinks and and what he what he processes mentally is much more important than you know mm -hmm. any other player in sports pitchers but there's a physical performance but i would think that the that the quarterback would have to physically perform at least at a level better than Peyton. So it seems that he you were maybe saying to yourself, wow, maybe there are no physical limitations. Maybe even with a noodle arm and the inability to throw a 15-yard out, you could or be run. so smart. He didn't get less smart. So the there there is a certain point where you just can't do it physically, and he reached that point. I hope no one's begrudging Peyton Manning that. And maybe because he doesn't write a poem, he just sings. Burr, 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 doo, 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 doo. So I think with Peyton... You know, with somebody who does have the obvious physical limitations that he does, when he does have a bad game, and he's had a bunch this year in the game where he set the career yardage record, he threw four interceptions and threw for like 30 yards to set the career yardage record. He looks so bad when he's bad. It's not like a game where like Jay Cutler is bad, where he's like zipping the ball to the defense when he throws interceptions. It just looks like he shouldn't be 
out on the field. And that's kind of what it it quickly transformed from like, wow, I can't believe he's doing that, you know, in a positive way to like, wow, I can't believe he's doing that in a negative way. Generally, like replacing the old guy with the young guy is not a mistake. And I don't mm -hmm. think it'll be a mistake for the Broncos. And again, it's like when you're not Kobe Bryant and you're not the Lakers, this is what happens. Even, you know, a Hall of Famer, one of the best quarterbacks ever, you're not going to be able to decide how you end your career. Joe Montana couldn't do it. Peyton but, Manning won't be able to do it. Another good example of that, Nixon and Kennedy. Great, great uh, stopping point. On Saturday night in Tiger Stadium, LSU beat Texas A&M 19-7, 10-day three-game losing streak that started with the team at number two in the initial college football playoff rankings and ended with them unranked. That streak included a blowout loss to Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide, and it led to rumors in every media outlet in the world that Miles, who won a national championship at LSU in 2007, um, was about to be fired, that boosters were lining up at cash machines in Baton Rouge to get the $15 million needed to pay Miles' buyout, and that LSU was going to hire Florida State coach Jimbo Fisher to replace him. The game on Saturday had a valedictory vibe. Miles' players carried him off the field. But in a press conference moments after the game was over, athletic director Joe Oliva said, I want to make it very clear and positive that Les Miles is our football coach and he will continue to be our football coach. That was a lot messier and stranger than what happened at the University of Georgia, where the school announced, after not a huge amount of fanfare, that coach Mark Richt was stepping down after 15 seasons. ESPN reports that he was actually fired, that he didn't step down. Um, Richt, whose Georgia Bulldogs went 9-3 and three this year, has a 145-51 and 51 overall record at Georgia. He's won two SEC titles, though the school hasn't played for the national championship since he arrived in Athens. Um, I like to talk about the media angle of all this, um, as well as my complex feelings as an LSU fan. But, mm -hmm. Stefan, let's start with the big picture mm -hmm. question of when is the right time to fire a coach or a college football coach specifically? Well, I think the right time is after he's been embarrassed for, you know, berating players or abusing them the way the guy at Illinois was um, or after some sort of. You know, falling out. I mean, in some sort of indication that the program is not operating ethically and morally and well. And that can include not being a great coach and not succeeding or at least doing as well as people might want you to on the field. I don't think Mark Rick falls into any of those categories. I mean, everything I've read about him has been Hosanna after Hosanna, ran the program successfully, won conference championships, was a game away from playing for the national title three years ago. Um, acted morally when it came to players, granted transfers when players requested them, didn't withhold them, kicked players out um, who then went on to do well and lead other teams to national titles but felt that that was the right thing to do, like Nick Marshall at Auburn, who was uh, dismissed from Georgia after a theft on campus, and Zach Mettenberger, who went on to LSU, right, um, after he had been, uh, what was he kicked out for, pleading guilty to sexual battery. So by all accounts, this guy acted morally, ethically, above and beyond the SEC standard for college coaches. And what a standard it is. And it is quite a high standard. Um, and yet that is perceived as not enough because he didn't win a national championship. And that is his single failing, apparently, as a coach. He didn't win a national championship in football. That is insanity.
Well, on the one hand, it is unfair. I mean, you know, a decent uh, criteria for when a coach should be fired is if most of the players really enjoy playing for you, I say keep the coach because they're not going to that'll that'll subsume wins and losses. Players want to win. And if the players don't like you, the majority of them. Eh, combined with uh, maybe some of the ethical stuff, fine to fire them. But, you know, our criteria would argue for more coaches staying longer, and that would probably be fair in the cases of these coaches who are fired and uh, it's it's seemingly unfairly. But then again, that would also clog the ranks of coaching. So more people get more jobs and more chances to at least be a coach and prove that you too can get close to a national championship and then lose three straight while ranked and have all these rumors about boosters buying out your lucrative contract. Yeah, I I sort of feel like 15 years is a really long time. And like, even if you do a good job and you're moral, it's like you've had a long tenure at a job where there's a huge amount of turnover. I mean, Maybe college sports is different or should be thought of as different, but 15 years as an NFL coach or an NBA coach or a baseball manager, that's like insane. College like nobody, is different. Nobody lasts for that long. But, you know, it's we think that it's different. In practice, it really isn't different. Um, but I don't feel like if a school wants a guy gone after 15 years if the fan base is tired of him, then that's fine. Like, he's mm-hmm. been he's been around for, you know, a decade he's and a half. He's made a lot of money. He's made a lot of money. And like Mike said, I'm sure they're going to, you know, hire an underrepresented minority to uh, to coach the team. No, that's <laughs> yeah. not actually going to happen. Um, back over to Les Miles. So this is where kind of the lizard brain of the college football fan, and this is like my most lizard-brained activity in life is my support for LSU football comes up against like the rational human slash rational sports fan because most successful coach in LSU history won a national title led them to another national championship game seems to be like a pretty good dude by the standards of football coaches Um, well liked by his players generally liked by the fans but there are just some really obvious faults that the team has had, especially since they lost the title game to Alabama. Um, You know, he has won only 60% of his SEC games in his last four years. He's lost five in a row to Alabama. He's lost to every team in the SEC West except Texas A&M in the last two years. The ranks of their passing offense the last seven seasons in the NCAA, 97th, 107th, 106th, 94th, 45th. The year they had Zach Menberger, Odell Beckham, and Jarvis Landry, 116th, and then 111th. Um, And so sort of like any relationship that you have in life, um, you know, maybe you're with your wife. You know, she's a good person. She's a great person. You love her. But she's got some obvious faults. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'll get rid of her and, like, uh, get a new wife. She chews grass on the sidelines, maybe. (laughs) The new wife is going to have problems, too. And that's the the issue. And, Stefan, you sent around this Dan Wetzel story about Nick Saban. Every coach in all of sports and all of college football, when you hire this person, they're not going to be perfect. They're going to have faults. They're going to be things that annoy the fan base about this coach, except for Nick Saban. And the problem is that Nick Saban is the big rival of LSU because he used to coach there, and Alabama is the big program. Everybody defines themselves against Mm -hmm. this kind of coaching paragon, and you're always going to come up short 
And Even coaching, though Saban is actually Paragons, very short himself. And coaching paragons also are tied into how much money universities are willing to spend, whether they're willing to just spend as much as possible. The Washington Post had a terrific piece uh, just last week, I think, about how uh, college athletic departments are bringing in more money than ever, but they are pleading poverty because they're spending more money than ever, like way more than than they're bringing in in many cases. Um, so and creating you know, setting a standard is kind of absurd, right? I mean, so everyone wants to hire Saban's assistant coaches, right? His offensive coordinator is rumored to be the guy that's going to Georgia. Isn't that right? Defensive coordinator. Defensive coordinator. Kirby Sorry. Smart. Kirby Smart. There you go. Um, so I'm just, just to set the visual, there is a lizard brain on Josh's left shoulder and a human brain on his right shoulder. And I understand where the lizard brain comes from. I mean, that is complete fan base stuff. And as we said, losing is certainly, and underperforming is certainly a reason for change. And... I think that's what we're seeing. But there is also at the same time these unrealistic expectations among fan bases, particularly in big time, big five conferences. Well, college football fans are the biggest ingrates of any group of people Correct. on earth. Like after Ohio State lost to Michigan State the other week by three points. Um, Fire Urban Meyer. People were so mad. Ohio State fans were so mad and so mad at the coach, Urban Meyer. He is 49 and four. At Ohio State, they like pulled a national championship out of their ass last year. There's this, oh, he's lost the locker room. And the guy is 49 and four. And people are angry at that coach. Um, one theory that I have is that in college football, it's the sport that has the fewest markers of success. So in college basketball, oh, we made the tournament. That's good. Oh, we made the sweet 16. The sport has even convinced fans that like making the final four is is like is as good as winning a championship in any other sport oh we made the final four you didn't win you just made the final four in college football there's nothing you can do and like this is now when there's a playoff when there are four teams that you, that you can point to and say like oh that's great we made the playoff made the final four so it's even like double what it was a few years ago there's like nothing you can do if you're less miles or mark richt well Especially them, because the, the, there is one other thing, which is when your conference and they happen to play in the same conference, so they both can't do that, and they happen to play in the same conference with Alabama. So this is right. where, when you listed the, his, there are only like eight or ten percent of the big teams that can be happy in any given year, compared right. to like NFL, forty percent make the playoffs, and you know every other sport, you can convince yourself as a fan, and probably rightly so, that your team is like on the right track and you're doing well. And in college football, if you don't win your conference or make the playoff, which is like a tiny percentage of teams, you you suck and it's a lost season. But also when you judge yourself as LSU does against Alabama, when you ticked off, they, they've lost their last six against Alabama. Lost well, their last five. Their damn. last five. Okay. Who hasn't? The answer is Ole Miss, Ohio State, Oklahoma. That's about it, right? Was there one other well, A&M Alabama? beat them Texas with A&M. A&M beat them with Manziel. Okay, so so LSU has a better record against Alabama over their last six than all but four other teams, or they're tied with than every other team except Ole Miss. Let's put it that way. And this is still one of the knocks against Les Miles. It's uh, it's seemingly impossible to do well, especially you know long term in the SEC. Two kind of final points. Number one, there is this sense in college football and it's totally correct that hiring the right coach will transform your program in a way that it can in college basketball where it depends you know the coach is important but it depends so much on the you know 
two or three great players that you're able to get in the NBA, NFL, whatever. You know, the coaches don't matter as much. In college football, like, you know, Baylor brings in Art Bryles and they've been all the, like, the worst program ever. And they're playing for, you know, chance to go in the playoffs now. So you can totally convince yourself that hiring a new coach will fix everything. And also just kind of media criticism about how the Miles thing was reported, both in local papers and in ESPN, Joe Shad primarily. It was just reporting for the last few weeks that he was very likely to be gone, that they were going to pay his buyout. Um, and then at the last minute, it changes to, oh, they're having a change of heart. And then it, and then Shad reports after the press conference, like, oh, they, they met in the third quarter during the game, the administrators, and decided to keep him. And they felt like the fans had changed their minds and they wanted Miles to stay. I think that, you know, this is a problem with anonymous sources. And this was a primary example of a story where you need to know who the people are. Joe Shad is like, he's leaving. Everybody's like, he's leaving based on a source. I need to know if that's a booster who just like has a lot of money and thinks he's going to be able to like buy his way to a new coach. Or is it the athletic director? Is it like, you know, somebody who's close to the athletic director? And by not knowing, you just get these stories that basically say he's leaving and there's no kind of distinction being made from, you know, where is this coming from? Is it somebody who's just trying to like will this story into existence? And in college football, you've got like rich people who just think that they control the programs and they often do. Um, but it's reported just like basically it's a foregone conclusion when it's people who are trying to make something happen and reporters aren't willing to acknowledge their role in this process. Joe Shad is just like, oh, well, you know, basically it just fell apart. It's like, you know, not acknowledging that he was used. All these reporters were used in this process by people whose names weren't attached to it. And Josh, I want to compliment you for that concise and accurate critique without using the phrase, a man's livelihood is at stake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We didn't even talk about Rutgers. They yeah. hired their coach, too. That's true. That's true Let's often move on. with many segments on our show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. We are going to talk about New Jersey, though. On Sunday in East Rutherford, New Jersey, the New York Jets beat the Miami Dolphins 38-20 to behind four touchdown passes from a noticeably less hirsute Ryan Fitzpatrick. The best play of the game was a long touchdown run, though, by the Jets' Chris Ivory, who bounced off a bunch of tacklers on his way to the end zone. Here is CBS's Ian Eagle on the call. And again, Ivory... Sidestepping, stays on his feet. Ivory breaks another tackle. Chris Ivory, what a run! Touchdown, Jets! Spectacular, Chris Ivory, 31 yards. Joining us now is Ian Eagle, who, in addition to his Sunday NFL duties, does play-by-play -play for the Brooklyn Nets on the Yes Network, does Thursday night football for Westwood One on the radio, calls the U.S. Open and the NCAA basketball tournament for CBS. Ian, welcome to the show. Guys, thanks so much for having me. Great to talk with you guys. Uh, my first question is, were you really that excited about Chris Ivory's touchdown? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was really that excited. Fake, fake, fake. No, not fake. It real, very real. <laughs> and you know, one thing, having done this job for for so many years now, I don't, I don't take any of it for granted. When you step into a stadium, there are eighty thousand people there, and you got the headset on, and you've got an exciting play. Uh, I think natural instincts kind of kick in, and for me, having uh, done the NFL now for for 18 years and the NBA for 20 plus years, 
you know your your vocal range, and uh, you kind of know the places you can go where it blends with the crowd, and it just feels right. We first had the idea to have you on the show after Sports Illustrated did a piece on how you prepare for games by writing out notes by hand on Manila folders. Um, <laughs> Old school. Yes. Uh, people can look at your notes in that SI piece, and you actually sent us the ones that you did for the Jets Dolphins game. You write everything out by hand in small print from the heights and weights of every player to the fact that Dolphins coach Dan Campbell is a big fan of Metallica. Um, so why don't you walk us through how you put those notes together for a game? Because I think um, people would be interested to know just how a guy who does play-by-play for a network prepares for a game. Yeah, and you know, I think there's definitely a segment of the population that is curious, and then there's an entire segment that really enjoys hot dogs, but they don't really want to know how the hot dogs are being made. So I get it on on both sides. Uh, for those that uh, have a curiosity on how a play-by-play guy prepares, it doesn't necessarily stay consistent for each announcer. Everybody's got their own way. It's based on the methodology that they've come up with where they can get information quickly over the course of a game and put it in a digestible form for the viewer. So for me, I decided very early on in the process that I'm still of the the mindset if I write something down, there's a better chance of it getting into my brain than if I type it out. And whether that's showing my age, I'm 46 years old, and that's how I did it, pre-computer and word processor. That was still the way to do it back in high school and in college, and then things started to transition. Monday morning, I hit the books early, try to work on the home team first, create a skeleton of a board by setting up the depth chart for the team, offense, defense, offense on one side, defense on the other side. And uh, once you attack the home team, you start on the road team. And then as the week progresses, you start filling in the gaps with personal information, uh, nuggets, something that might be worthwhile. The reality is, for all the work you do, if you get in 30% of that information, I would consider that number uh, maybe even high. Uh, if it's a really good game, competitive game, the number goes down. If the game's lopsided, the number goes up, and you find yourself uh, trying to come up with talking points in game, something that will maintain the interest of the viewer and something that could lead to a, a bigger discussion with your analyst if it's appropriate. There is something uh, a beautiful mind about about the approach too. I mean, it, it is a it is an enormous amount of information. I mean, you 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 write in tiny type on the inside of a manila folder and you've got one team on one side and one team on the other flap and it's a long list plus you've got four how big are those pieces of paper those are big yeah it's it's your uh, typical manila folder and and then i manipulate it into uh how it works for me you're right uh, there is there is a john nash a uh, kind of mentality that goes into it. And it's funny because uh, when we do have visitors to the booth and uh, they're curious as to what you have in front of you, I think that's always been a question of anyone watching a sporting event. Like, well, what, what, what do these guys have? What, what's at their fingertips? And it's really based on you. It's based on the individual. There are many broadcasters that, that have other 
people do the boards for them. They have a service that will give them a computer printout of the boards, and that's sufficient for them. That works. Uh, for me, uh, maybe because I started so young and there was the mentality of, hey, I, just, I have to know more. And I think with the information age that we're in now, uh, you really do have to know more. You can be exposed for being underprepared. I think people can, can figure that out pretty quickly, the, the announcers that, that aren't ready, that are going with the very generic, general, broad-stroke storylines. And when you're doing these games where the home uh, fans and the fans uh, that follow the road team, they've got such unique knowledge now uh, based on the Internet, based on the information that's available to them. Uh, you can't just go with the basics anymore. You can't just go with the media notes and, and hope that's enough. You, you've got to dig a little deeper. So when people come into the broadcast booth and they, they come over and, and they see my notes, and oftentimes this is a pretty common theme, uh, they'll say, oh, wow, I, I can't read those. I was like, well, yeah, you don't have to. That's, that's the whole <laughs> point here. I, just me. I just have to get through it. So while it does look like uh, Chinese arithmetic on there, uh, there is a method to the madness, and uh, whatever the color-coded system is, it works for my brain, and I'm able to get the information quickly and then spew it out in, in a very uh, fast fashion so that uh, we're not wasting valuable time on the air. So if this is, in fact, a John Nash quality, are you saying that Mike Fratello is purely a figment of your imagination and will be paid by Ed Harris? <laughs> yes. Finally, somebody has cracked the code. Mike Fratello does not. The czar of the telestrator is, is not real. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's funny because uh, I think analysts have a completely different way to prepare for games. Normally, they're ex-athletes or former coaches, so their mind works in a different way, and their notes are set up in a different way. And I think you could probably have a hundred different broadcasters on, and, and you would get a hundred different stories as to how they do this. The bottom line is uh, the finished product is in that three-hour and eight-minute window on Sundays where you get a finite amount of time to share the information that you have. And I think for me, as the years have gone by, I've realized uh, don't push it. If it doesn't fit, don't use it. Don't try to show people how much you've prepared. If it's germane to the conversation, if it's something that fits in the moment, great. If it doesn't, it's okay. Uh, it, it's okay if you've got a bunch of notes that never make air. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That means the flow of the game is taking you in a different direction. And I think when I was younger, and I think a lot of young broadcasters just feel like, all right, I've, I've just got to give you everything I've got. If it's diarrhea, the mouth, so be it. But you're going to get every piece of information that I've prepared for this game, whether it fits with what's happening in the action or if it doesn't. Well, I wanted to ask you about not pushing it because I've listened to you a long time. In fact, I was 11. I called it to WFAN. You were guest hosting. I think I answered the trivia question right. I'll, I could ask you <laughs> it again. I remember it. But you're a funny, funny guy. It come, definitely comes through in Nets games, especially during like a home-and-home Celtics-Nets 
fourth quarter blowout, some jokes are made, but you can't really show too much of that in a football game. But your dad was this, not vaudeville, but kind of a Borscht Bell comic, right, Jack Eagle? Right. And so how much do you, how much are you pulling back as opposed to, you know, wanting to show your personality in an NFL game specifically? Yeah, I, I think you need to know the audience more than anything else. So uh, somewhere along the line, I, I realized that there are many, many viewers that do not want humor. They don't. They, they just don't want what uh, they would deem as amateur night at the Chuckle Hut. Uh, they just want the game. They want the X's and O's. They want the particulars. They want the score. They want the time remaining. They want the situation. I get it. I think the local broadcasts have lent itself to a little bit more of those light moments. And because of that, it allowed me to maybe bring some of that onto a more national scale. Once I was comfortable with the idea that I'm not going to put myself in, in front of the game, I, I never would. Uh, I just don't view it that way. I try to take my ego out of it. I'm certainly not a narcissist, so it's not about me. It's never been about me. But if it can lend to the enjoyment of the game, I feel like uh, I, can, I can go there. Williams that move across the lane. His ability to probe and get the bucket. Yeah, Joe, that's the old banana in the tailpipe right there. Yeah. Bird, man. Yeah, that's uh, Beverly Hills Cop. You're good, man. You're good. That was actually Damon Wayans. People don't realize. That was Damon Wayans. Which Beverly Hills Cop was it? That was one. That okay. was the first You're one. Good. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to fool you. Judge Reinhold. Good punch, Taggart. <laughs> For many years, I worked with the great Bill Raftery, and I think that is what triggered it for me, that you have to be you. You've got to be yourself. If the essence of you isn't coming through, then what are you doing this job for? And with Bill, because he was the same guy off the air and on the air, it did show me and indicate to me that uh, you can do that. The lines can blur as long as you're not talking over the audience, as long as it's not inside joke after inside joke, as long as the audience is in on it to some degree. I think you can have uh, those moments over the course of a broadcast. But there's no doubt, uh, on a CBS game, a national game, uh, I will pull back a bit just based on how many masters you're trying to serve. Yeah, the distinction between local and national is really interesting because you have this relationship with viewers as a local guy where they feel like they know you, that they're your friend, yeah. And that they're willing to be more indulgent of your flights of fancy, maybe. I feel like on national broadcasts, viewers are not very forgiving. And as an announcer, you're kind of like, I hate to define things negatively, but you're like, the best you can do a lot of the time is just to come off as a neutral presence and not annoy the viewer. Um, because viewers get really mad at, you know, whether it's <laughs> Joe Buck or whoever, they just get really angry at the announcer. And it can be because... They feel like they know more about the team than you do. They can feel like you're biased against their team for whatever reason. And so how do you think about your role in a national broadcast when people can be such harsh critics? Yeah, I think it's changed, and it's been altered through the years. I started at CBS in 1998, and at that time... Uh, you know, whatever game I was assigned, uh, I was thrilled to be there. I was thrilled to be a part of the action. This was the NFL. This was a dream. 
And little by little, as feedback became a bigger part of the equation, and with the Internet and at that time message boards and things of that nature, uh, you'd get little bits of brushback from uh, fans saying that you're rooting against their team or you're bad luck or the announcer jinx. And at the time, because I was young and still new to the business, and I had no idea who was reading this, were my bosses reading it, uh, were people within the industry reading it, I didn't know how to react. Uh, then, uh, as the years went on and some stories were framed, I did a number of Cleveland Browns games early in my career, and a story, where, this is at a time where media critics were a bigger part of the landscape, and a media critic in Cleveland had posted the record of the Browns when I had broadcast <laughs> the games, and they were like 2 and 21, something to that effect. So basically normal for the Browns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in my mind, basically normal. So we're, we're pulling out of the game after yet another Browns loss, and the way that the traffic pattern is set up when you leave that stadium is you have to go through a sea of humanity to get to the highway, and it's... Or, or at least Browns fans. Browns fans, <laughs> equivalent to Browns fans. As I'm leaving the stadium, you're trying to get through this crowd. And I, I don't know, people start looking into the car and literally were screaming my name and, and giving me the finger and cursing me. I'm like, dude, I, I had nothing to do with this 42-3 loss to the Steelers. Like, this, this has... This has nothing to do with me, but that's when it started to become a bit comical. Uh, I realized that it's, it's part of the culture, and it really is not personal. Now, with Twitter and uh, with all the tools that, that fans have at their disposal, and everybody's got their own talk show at this point, uh, that, that's where we're at as a uh, sports society, you really can't take it to heart. There are legitimate criticisms that, if it pushes the needle and you see over and over again, uh, I think you do at least open your eyes to it. If it's so, what are the things that people have said about you that you've actually taken to heart? Uh, the things that I've taken to heart have more to do with uh, style of play-by-play, and um, you know, you mentioned early on the, the energy part. I think there was a time where. Uh, somebody had written, and uh, maybe it was accurate, that, wow, he sounds a little too excited to be calling a Tennessee-Jacksonville game. <laughs> and, you know, this is maybe seven years ago, whatever it might have been. That's because you, you were listening okay. to John Sterling call him next game when you were growing <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> so uh, it, it struck me, and I tried to look at it in the context of what it is. For me, that's my big game of the week. That's the game I'm doing. And I had to at least view it through the prism of someone that's tuning in, maybe not a Jacksonville fan or a Tennessee fan for that matter, but a random fan that's saying, well, wait a second, I'm tuning into this game on the red zone, and this guy seems way too into it, considering that it's uh, three and six against two and seven. And I, I thought that was a fair criticism of, all right, uh, I might need to to dial it back based on the audience and who's watching and what's at stake, and it isn't the Super Bowl. So I do think it played a role in, in some degree of polishing a bit or just making a slight adjustment 
based on your week-to-week schedule. By the way, two weeks ago, Tennessee played Jacksonville on that Thursday night NFL game. I don't know if you saw the Open, but they hired Eddie George, who is now a professional actor, to do the Shakespearean soliloquy about the import of the Tennessee-Jacksonville <laughs> matchup. Dude, he put you, he made, he made whatever you could have done sounded like <laughs> somnambulance. <laughs> you can't uh, hype the know. NFL too much these days. In this league, everyone gets a turn. All 32 teams. If you're up now, you'll be down again at some point. It's not going to be Brady and Manning forever. So don't tell me that these two teams don't matter. Don't tell me that Mariota and Bortles don't get their teams a shot. Tonight, next week, next month, and for years to come. You know, the future. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. I did the game on radio, so I did not see the open. I do know that Eddie, who uh, has been pursuing this acting career, is uh, a guy that uh, is a bit theatrical. And let me tell you, because I did a bunch of Tennessee games through the years, he was a great guy to deal with. He's one of those guys in all these years doing the NFL, when he walked in the room, and we're talking about uh, tremendous athletes. Uh, These are physical specimens. But when he walked in the room for the production meeting, he was one of those guys where you turn around and you're like, oh, man, I, I did not realize. Wow, that's, that's next level. This guy's a running back? How? So uh, let me at least give credit where credit is due. He was great to deal with when he was a player, and I wish him luck in his uh, Shakespearean uh, interests beyond football. <laughs> Ian, let me ask you one more local national question. That you said you're, you know, you're 46. You definitely straddle the generations where you are able to understand analytics and to appreciate where they came from. At least I hope so. How have yeah. you found a way to integrate what I think a lot of fans that might be watching you locally want to hear in terms of how? broadcasters analyze players and analyze the game versus trying to do or trying to integrate some of that stuff on a national broadcast? Yeah, for me, it's really been all about context. As long as there's a baseline to explain it, I don't want to throw out numbers in a bubble. Uh, If the years go by and people have a greater understanding of what the numbers equate to, then I'll certainly be more apt to use them. If we can create a graphic on television that allows you to understand what the average is, what's considered good, what's considered poor, then I'd be, again, more open to using them. But to just toss them out in the middle of games without a real understanding of uh, the, the bigger picture of these numbers, I'm not comfortable with. So, It's been a process, I think, for all announcers, certainly for uh, older announcers who had never had to deal with this whatsoever, younger announcers who are gung-ho about it, uh, but an older audience that doesn't quite understand it. So it it does factor into what we talked about earlier. When uh, you're doing a game, you do have to have an understanding of who your audience is, who is your typical viewer. And not to say that you're playing to one specific part of the audience, Uh, You're trying to play to everybody in some form. So if there is sufficient enough information to explain the numbers, explain the advanced stats, then I'm all for it. Uh, If if they're just kind of floating out there on their own, uh, then I'll I'll be a a bit more tentative in in going there. All right, let's move on to like a a lightning round type situation. Ian, I wrote down a few 
Iron Eagle tidbits, sort of like if I was talking about you during a broadcast. Um, so, so let me know uh, how I do on these, or maybe throw in a few of your own. You won the Bob Costas Award for outstanding sports casting at Syracuse University. Um, did Bob present that to you personally? Um, is it a statue of Bob Costas? Like, what sort of situation are we are we looking at here? Yeah, it, it's so strange that that you would bring that up. Um, yes, it is a statue of Bob Costas, <laughs> and it is uh, his natural height. So <laughs> it, it's in my office. No, it, it was uh, one thousand dollars, and uh, the best part of it is that it was uh, a personal check, and it it had. Robert Costas on the check. That was so just to dissuade you from cashing it. There was a moment. <laughs> thought you honest, would frame I, it. I went to my father. I said, you know, what do I do here? He goes, what do you mean, what do you do? I said, it, it's a $1,000 check from, from Robert Costas. I, I, this is a nice keepsake. He goes, it's a thousand dollars. You're you're going to cash the check? Oh yes, yes, yes. I'm going to going <laughs> take to a photo of the check, kid. <laughs> yeah, this was this was you know before cell phones. This was uh, 1990. So I don't know. I just I took the thousand bucks and and I I went home. Any any other uh, sure? I got questions? one. I got one. This was the trivia question. The year was circa 1993, so it might have changed. But here's what you uh, asked me. I believe I got it right. Uh, there have been four covers of Sports Illustrated, Time, and Newsweek that have had the same subject in the same week. A man, a woman, a team, and an animal. Can you name any of them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Secretariat would yes, be one. Yes, uh, yes. The, the others, man or woman? Man, woman, team, animal. Man, woman, team, animal. I would say Miracle on Ice. Yes. That would be another. So we got the team, we've got the animal. <laughs> And now the question is, do we have the man? <laughs> and the Did woman. you have the man? Yeah, I got the man. It Did w- you get anything out of it, like a, a WFAN T-shirt, a keychain, anything? I got a thousand dollar check. Yeah, from I got Bob a re- I got a reendorsed check from jo- from Bob Costas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The woman, the woman was Mary Lou Retton, and the man wow. was coincidentally Jason Gedrick. No, it was Joe. <laughs> it was Joe Namath. <laughs> Broadway Joe, who was there, he was at the game yesterday. They were honoring Emerson Boozer, and uh, there was Broadway Joe trotting in uh, to uh, a standing ovation as as he normally gets anywhere he goes. That very nice. That, that was, and you were how old at the at the time? Eleven. We're, yeah, we're a few years apart. Only a few years apart. <laughs> so you were like a year out of school. Honestly, it was probably nineteen ninety two. All right, I want to test you. This is the last question. I want to test you on these cards that you put together every week, Ian. You know, they're very detailed. <laughs> I'm looking at one player. On the Miami Dolphins, and I got to describe a little bit, you put a big red number for the player's number. You put the, the first letter of the player's last name in a giant letter. This is all yeah, caps. And then everything else in yeah. lower caps. So what can you tell us about Andrew Franks? <laughs> Andrew Franks, my man from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, Division three product. He was a biomedical engineering major, uh, based in Troy, New York. That's where the school is. Their their nickname is the Engineers. I mean, that's a huge shocker that uh, RPI would be the Engineers. Played baseball in high school. Played soccer in high school. Actually, punted for two years as well. Caleb Sturgis had the job. He beat him out for the job. They went with the rookie, and he spent some time with Phil Dawson, working on his kicking game, also with John Carney. So this was a guy that they thought had some natural talent. He was able to go out and uh, make the most of his talent, and now he's in the National Football League. Andrew Franks, a 22-year-old rookie 
from Can you swear you're not reading this off the card right now? No, man? no, no. I don't even, the cards, <laughs> they, they go, they're thrown in an incinerator after the game. It, it's over. <laughs> All right, Ian, you're going to be um, calling uh, Suns at Nets on Tuesday. Then you're going to do Green Bay at the Lions on the radio on Thursday. Then back to basketball Friday. And then Jets at Giants on CBS on Sunday. So just a normal week. Yeah, this is a normal week of uh, running around, and um, you know I'll, I'll wear makeup for that for that radio game as well because I just dig it. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for for coming on, and we'll be uh, listening for you four times this week. <laughs> Guys, great to talk with you. Hope we can do it again in the future, and uh, keep up the fantastic work. Ian Eagle is a play-by-play man for the NFL on CBS. Now it is time for After Balls. We talked about the University of Georgia firing head coach Mark Richt after 15 seasons. Ugga will still be there, though. How many Uggas did Richt see during his tenure? Do you want to guess, Mike? Mm, they have those poor bulldogs inbred with giant heads. Uh, so he's there 15 years. I'm going to see four Uggas. He was a five-Ugga man. Five-Ugga man. He got yeah. the tail end, the stubby little tail end of one Ugga. <laughs> yeah, Ugga 10, actually, the yeah. last. He got one year of Ugga 10. It's always a white male bulldog. I wonder why that is. But there was one time a female bulldog named Bugaloo filled in when Ugga 2 was sick in 1971. Struck with, a, with what? Struck a <laughs> dog diseases. <laughs> struck a blow for canine feminism in leading Georgia to blow out wins over South Carolina and Florida before retiring undefeated, the best coach in Georgia history, Bugaloo. Mike, what is your Bugaloo? I was watching the TCU against Baylor game, and I was thinking of something. Why is it that football is played in a driving rain without any thought given to how it will affect the game? Now, we wouldn't play baseball in a driving rain because you can't grip the ball. Guess what? That is also true of football. Baylor and TCU come into the game with uh, two of the, the the number three and four ranked offenses, and that's if you count Texas Tech and Bowling Green, and I guess we have to count them. So these, these offenses are averaging, you know, over 600 and close to 600 yards a game. And in the game, they combine for only about 600 yards. In fact, Baylor, which throws for, I don't know, 350 passing yards a game, put together 62 yards in the air. And the announcers during the game, they did pay. You know, they talked about the elements. It was hard not to, especially when there's a series of plays where three ball exchanges in a row result in the ball getting to the ground. But it was almost as if, yes, while we acknowledge that there is a rain full of uh, not only horned frogs, but I think actual frogs and some other biblical plagues. You know, TCU's really putting together a fine game plan to thwart the Baylor offense. No, you're playing in a monsoon. It fundamentally affects a game. My favorite other game plan was to have Baylor playing like its 18th string quarterback. That yeah, also helps. That Yes, although other this is this has uh, been visited upon Baylor in past games, and none of that seems to matter. I will uh, read some quotes from Art Bryles after the game uh, on trying to rotate in dry footballs. We tried to keep a dry ball out there every chance we could, but it was hard. You're going to have to talk more to our equipment staff. I don't know if any reporters followed him up on that advice. So he was blaming the equipment staff <laughs> uh, yes. for the fact that the football was wet? Shouldn't he blame like, the sky? <laughs> on whether the rain was a factor. 
I think the elements had a whole lot to do with it. I think Chris played hard, played valiantly, but it's hard to execute in those conditions. It's just real hard to be real effective in those conditions. On defense, honestly, they allowed seven. It was a fumble recovery. They played unbelievable. If they continue to play this way, they'll continue to win football games. By this way, I assume he means TCU in a monsoon. My favorite moment of the game was when... So Dave Pash turns to uh, the experienced quarterback, Brian Greasy, and asks him, Greasy, if you're a quarterback and shotgun in these kind of offenses, is it harder when your hands are cold and wet to, to grip it how you want to, when you got to catch it quickly and well, throw it quickly? Yeah, there's two issues. The first issue is it's wet, so it's slippery. But maybe even more uh, important than that is when it gets cold, now your hand gets numb, so your hand, you can't really feel well, and it's wet. So there's two things going against you. Well, it's not just the wetness, it's also the coldness. But of course, you've got to note that when it's cold, there's also wetness. It just makes getting a grip really hard. This was a high watermark in a game filled with almost entirely high watermarks. Stefan, what is your bugaloo? Well, as we concluded on this program last week, without any legal expertise, daily fantasy sports is clearly gambling. (laughs) And it is a terrific gambling gateway drug, easy to access, low entry stakes, the promise of great riches, which makes it perfect for children. I've been listening to one middle school boy in the neighborhood tell about his (laughs) DFS exploits all season. Hey, you won $1,000 once. At a party uh, on a couple of Sundays ago, a pack of boys were glued to their phones, checking their fantasy results. Back in the day, Josh, it wasn't as easy for a young man to gamble on sports, but there were ways. The most common in my and many other high schools was the football betting sheet. Mm. I can still picture it, a white slip of paper, about six inches tall, three inches wide. It listed all 14 NFL games that weekend, plus a few college games. The favorite was in the left column, the point spread in the middle, the underdog on the right, the home team in all caps. There was also, as my friend Zeke recalls, some nonsense boilerplate about how it was entertainment only, not for wagering. You circled your picks, three games minimum, two or five or ten bucks to play, I can't really remember. The odds increased with the number of games picked. I have no idea how the system operated, who was printing the slips, where the money was going, how far up the organized crime syndicate, the football betting sheets operation went. It had to go, like, to the top, right? The Gambinos or yeah. um, one of those crime families. All I remember Joe is that there was, some, there was some other high school kid who was handing out the slips to interested customers, and you gave it back to him with your five bucks. I must have been in third or fourth grade the first time I filled one out because my older brother would bring them home from high school and did nothing to dissuade me from making my own picks. I'm sure, my, I'm sure our mother gave us the money to play. Uh, Zeke's father was a sports guy. He collected sports memorabilia, played the horses, laid down the occasional bet, and filled out the weekly football betting sheet. Zeke says he brought his first sheet home from school and told his dad how great the odds were. Five to one if you got three games, right? Seven to one if you got four. Twenty-five to one if you pick six. His dad called him an idiot and explained how probability worked. That three games yielded eight possible outcomes, actual odds of seven to one. A real teachable moment. It was. And that the odds got worse the more games you picked. If you pick more than three games, he told Zeke, you're not my son. He also <laughs> explained why the spreads were almost always one, three, four, six, seven, or ten, because those were the most common differentials in football games and a push against the spread was a loss there was so much to learn from gambling (laughs) so much that bookies infiltrated high schools in the 1970s and 80s wasn't particularly surprising betting lines were in newspapers cbs put a las vegas gambler jimmy the greek snyder on its nfl today pregame show 
without point spreads, but with plenty of hints about score differentials. Today, you can still, of course, download line sheets at places like linesheet.com or gridirongold.com or vegashotsheets.com. And it's never been easier for kids to get the rush of trying to predict the outcome of games or individual plays. But there was something iconic about those slips of paper and something exciting about handing five bucks to another kid in a transaction that was ostensibly open but had a whiff of the illicit. Those betting slips were awesome. Josh, what's your bugaloo? So last week, Mike and I uh, attended the semifinal of the FanDuel Legends Classic between LSU and Marquette. It was really one of the most exciting games in FanDuel Legends Classic history. Mm. It's up there. Um, today, I'm going to talk about a more storied Thanksgiving week tournament, the Great Alaska Shootout. Um, Rush the Court, the website noted last week that the shootout was launched by an amazing character named Bob Rashal, a Keijin who was once employed as the educational supervisor at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Uh, he came to Alaska Anchorage and announced that it was the worst college coaching job in America, but by the time I leave, it'll be the best. He immediately changed the school's nickname from Sourdoughs to Seawolves and scheduled road games against Texas, Louisville, and Stanford. He inaugurated the Glacier Girls Ice Team. I mean, dance team. Mm -hmm. Even better, Glacier Girls Dance Team. And he wore a tuxedo and top hat to games. Um, Rashal died of cancer in 1985, um, but he had a very bumpy tenure in Anchorage. Before the season started, two of his new players were charged with felony theft for stealing pistols. In the fourth game of the season, he pulled his team off the court because he didn't like one of the referees. He was also accused of a myriad, uh, myriad of recruiting violations, allegations he blamed on what he called, quote, the Fairbanks element. Jealous types <laughs> from the University of Alaska Fairbanks who were mad that in his role as Alaska Anchorage's athletic director, he had hired away Fairbanks' ski coach. The <laughs> The NCAA sided with the Fairbanks element. They banned Anchorage from the postseason and TV for two years for violations, including giving players free apartments and handing out cash to recruits. Rashal was fired after just one season. According to a 2004 story in the Daily Oklahoman, Rashal's replacement as athletic director found seven signed contracts in the coach's desk in the top drawer each one promising $8,000 to a basketball team to come play the Seawolves in a tournament. Those teams included Louisville, Indiana, North Carolina State. They all played in the inaugural Seawolf Classic in 1978. So even without Rashal around, Alaska Anchorage went through at the tournament. It was played on an army base because the city's biggest gym was already occupied by a production of the Nutcracker. So... Why did the tournament succeed? How has it stayed um, in existence for all these years? As far as local support goes, a 1980 Washington Post story quoted a local businessman saying, we go because we have nothing else to do. Mm. Always an important reason. High-profile teams were willing to come north because games played in Alaska as well as in Hawaii didn't count against what was then the maximum of 27 games in a season. That meant that they could bank extra wins that would look good at the end of the year when it was time to make selections for the NCAA tournament. Um, the tournament became known as the Great Alaska Shootout in 1979 after Billy Packer called it that. Oh, not after moved... the stolen pistols? <laughs> <laughs> um, it moved off the Army base into a new arena in 83, got a TV deal with ESPN in 85. From 95 to 2000, Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, Cincinnati, Kansas, and Syracuse were the winners of the Great Alaska Shootout. 
But the NCAA has relaxed its rules on these tournaments. There are now a billion of these uh, FanDuel Legends Classic type things. Many of them are owned and operated by ESPN. So as a consequence, ESPN stopped televising the Great Alaska Shootout in 2007. The quality of the fields has decreased precipitously. The last five champions, Murray State, Charlotte, Harvard, Colorado State, and your 2015 champ, Middle Tennessee, which was crowned on the CBS Sports Network. The tournament increasingly seems like a boondoggle. In 2012, the state approved subsidies to keep it alive, including giving $100 round-trip airline tickets to 1,500 Alaskans, allowing them to leave the state and return so long as they agreed to buy tickets to the Great Alaska Shootout. Starting next year, the University of Alaska Anchorage will pay a company called Basketball Travelers $7,500 per team to lure schools to compete in the tournament. Bonus of $10,000 per team if they play in one of the top six conferences. So hopefully the tournament will continue to exist because locals have gotten used to it. Last week, the TV station KTUU quoted one fan as, as saying, of course we had to sleep because we ate too much, but we took a little bit of a nap and now we're here. The Great Alaska Shootout. Long, long may it prosper. We really should examine all these early season basketball tournaments from the Cancun Challenge to the Paradise Jam in the Virgin Islands. It just seems to be the worst thing to do in those particular <laughs> tropical locales, as evidenced by 700 people in the stands to watch uh, Old Dominion play Florida. The uh, Paradise Jam is run by the same company that is now going to be running the Great Alaska Shootout. There you go. Uh, we love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hangup and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.